Movies entertain. Entertainment leads to emotions. Those emotions connect us to our enjoyment of film. And that is why we exist. To focus on the emotional connection more than the technical merit. Because every movie makes us feel something. Hey everyone, and welcome to episode 141 of the Feelin' Film Podcast. I'm Patch, and with me, as always, is my best friend and co-host, Aaron. Hello. That was pretty good. My wife asked me tonight if I was going to do this whole thing in that British accent, and I started doing it, and she goes, yeah, you need a dialect coach. <laughs> so I'll refrain from that. I might drop into it occasionally if I feel the need, but I think we'll keep with our regular American accents here. Well, we should make sure that she doesn't ever hear mine since you're the good accent guy, because if, okay. you're, if she doesn't like your accents, then she definitely doesn't want to hear mine. Well, in that regard, then she needs to hear yours so mine can sound better, you know, so we can we can help with each other. That's good. <laughs> well, if you haven't already guessed, this week we return to the world of Mary Poppins, starring Emily Blunt and Lin-Manuel Miranda. We like musicals, and we liked Mary Poppins a great deal, and uh, we're asking ourselves, did this live up to our expectations? Here be spoilers from here on out, so don't say we didn't warn you. Aaron, let's talk one-word takeaways. Why don't you kick us off, my friend? Will? Oh, Patrick. Um, <laughs> I have soured on this film as time has gone on. Now, I want to set some groundwork right up front before I get into this in saying that I saw this literally almost a month ago. This is a very rare occasion for me to not be podcasting and talking in-depth about the movie you know, without having seen it in the last week. And what I've noticed is that as time has gone by, it has very quickly faded from my memory. And that's unfortunate. I think that part of that is the film itself. And I think that part of that may also be because this is a very busy time of the year for me. At the end of November, the beginning of December, I'm watching literally at times I was watching 20 movies a week. So when you're taking in that much content, it takes so much to stand out. And so... I may come off a little harsher than maybe is fair. I don't know, but I'm just kind of wanted to, to throw that out there as context out front. Um, what I went with for my one word takeaway was recycled. And the reason I say this, I'm extremely torn in my feelings about this film because on the one hand, I enjoyed the heck out of it initially. And I left the theater honestly full of joy. I was very high on it. I thought it was wonderful and amazing. And I even, made a little Stardust reaction video with myself swinging around a lamppost to be all meta and cool. But the truth is that it is truly as direct a copy of the original film as I've ever seen a sequel be. And in that month since I've seen it, I think it's that copycat nature of it that's left me realizing that there's just a lot less memorable about it because of that when it comes to comparing it to its predecessor. And I'm not going to go into all the ways that it specifically recycles the original here, because I'm sure that we're going to talk about that when we get to intertextuality, which we'd love to discuss. But this was a lot like Star Wars The Force Awakens level of for me, as far as the references, only it was even higher than that, cranked up to like 11. And I think that's a real bummer, because what makes the original Mary Poppins so unforgettable was how unique and special it was. Nothing else exists like that movie. And seeing this just become a lesser copy of that in every way kind of made it fall right out of my mind. And I, I still think it was a lot of fun to watch, 
but I can't say that it's a movie I'm in any hurry to revisit, unfortunately. Yeah, that is unfortunate. Um, and, you know, there's some truth to what you prefaced your one word takeaway with in that the beauty and the curse of commenting on film is that there is a level of subjectivity to it and it's influenced by life circumstances. It's influenced by time of viewing. Um, just before we got on the podcast, I'm currently in the middle of watching Ralph breaks the internet, a movie that I want to see before the end of the year so that it may or may not make my top 10 and it may, at least it's worth talking about on our end of year episode that I'm looking forward to, to doing later this week. But at the same time, there are all these other movies that I'm trying to visit at some point and get a chance to see. And so if I'm looking at movies of like, wow, was this memorable? Well, yes, it's memorable right now because I've just seen it. But what kind of staying power does it have? What movies leave that lasting impression? And usually when we build lists like top tens or when we have discussions about movies, there's usually a set of criteria that we have going into something. And for Mary Poppins Returns, this was one that I remember looking forward to uh, when we were talking about it near the beginning of the year when it started getting teased and being a fan of the original and loving Emily Blunt and Lin-Manuel Miranda. It's just, it should be just aces, right? Um, but I remember having this conversation with you yesterday when I went to go see it with my wife and thinking, I'd kind of rather be seeing Bumblebee or Aquaman. I'm not as excited about seeing this. And I think it's because of the reasons that, that you mentioned that it, even before going into it, I knew that there was some repetition and I like Mary Poppins a lot. I mean, it's a really well-made film. It's a classic. It's one that I love talking about, but even it doesn't stand out to me like other musicals do like West Side Story. And because it's not connectable as connectable as a, as a musical like that, but it's great. And this is what I love about feeling film is that we can not enjoy a movie as much as another one, but still give it the praise that it deserves. And there's a lot to love about Mary Poppins returns. And my one word takeaway sort of ties into that. And I chose the word support. And even though this iteration of Mary Poppins kind of waned in my excitement of it. I think that my initial reaction leaving the theater was telling my wife, I liked it more than I thought I would. And a lot of it had to do with the second and third acts. Um, and we'll get into that in a little bit. But the big reason that I was asking, asking myself why was really answered in that just like the fresh look at Mary Poppins gave me another angle to watch it, i.e. the story of George Banks, this time around was equally not as much about Mary Poppins herself, but more about everyone else involved in this family. And not just the Banks family, but the, the family of the Mary Poppins world. You've got Jack, you've got the cook, you've got all these other supporting cast members that really make an effort throughout the narrative to be a part of the story. 
the plot of the movie and the strength behind it came not from Emily Blunt and her take on the practically practically perfect Mary, but on everyone who contributed to that central cause of the story and ultimately my enjoyment of it. So while I did walk away feeling like it wasn't a complete like wow for me, I was glad that I left the theater going, that was good. I'm glad that I went. And honestly, like you, it's probably not one that I'm going to revisit again, at least not for a while. And that's probably because of that familiarity. Um, and I wanted to go ahead and kind of open up the discussion by talking about what you mentioned, that big word that we like to use quite a bit, that intertextuality. And we both mentioned on the show in one form or another that it could be both a blessing and a curse. Um, the Force Awakens is a, is a great example of that because of the fact that the Millennium Falcon is the probably one of the best supporting actor or supporting characters in the Star Wars universe. So its reveal during The Force Awakens was one of like fist pumping <laughs> and clapping. At least that was my experience in it. The, the big reveal of that. But it can also be a curse because if you use it too much, as we've mentioned before, you run the risk of deflating your narrative. It's as if you're saying, the story doesn't really have a lot of legs to stand on, so let's call back and call back and call back to make people remember how good the original was. I want to open this up by quizzing you, if I can, if I can do that. I'm going to read a quote from a review that I found on the internet. Oh, uh, this, is, this is before Ralph broke it, but... <laughs> It is, uh, it's, it's, and I want you to tell me if this is a positive or a negative comment okay. on the movie. Okay. All right. So, so the quote is this quote, let's just say it like this. Imagine there was an alter alternate reality where Walt Disney and the Sherman brothers wrote a different Mary Poppins movie in 2018 and Emily Blunt was Mary Poppins. This is the movie that would happen. Is that a positive or a negative comment on the movie? I don't know if that's any comment on the movie. Where do you think, do you think this person is making a positive or a negative? Um, it's not a review necessarily, but this is, it's a, it's a statement. I would expect from that tone that it was going to go negative. Okay. And you would be wrong. The article that this came from was from someone who was completely gushing over how much they loved this movie. Interesting. And it was preceded by comments of like, of, of comments like, if you saw it in the original, guess what? It's in the new one. And she started pinpointing moments in the original movie. Does it have this? Yes. Does it have that? Yes. And then it followed with that particular quote. And so when I read that, I'm thinking, if read out of context, you wouldn't know if this person's vantage point was one of being frustrated with the fact that this is derivative or in entranced because this took them back to the beauty of Mary Poppins. And I think that's the conflict that we have here is we have an original and we have in some ways a carbon copy. I don't necessarily agree that it's a complete carbon copy. I think there's enough about it that's different, but there's a big issue for me of the original being a film that had a lot of unexpected things, unexpected visuals, unexpected story elements. 
but this film made that unexpected expected. We as a as an audience expected that to happen. It also had this conflict of repeating the quote extraordinary and as a result that extraordinary became ordinary. And so there's this expectation that you have of kind of wanting to watch this movie and experience all of that magic. But then when that magic comes and it looks similar to the original magic, it's kind of like seeing a magic trick done over and over again. Even if you don't know how it's done, you're like, but I've already seen that. What else is new? And, and it's a tough place to be as a moviegoer because I don't think the movie failed in that, but I think that it used the wrong kind of approach when it came to telling the story. Well, you know, I would, I guess, disagree because I think that, it, and again, this is a totally subjective thing. And that's, that goes to show the review that you read. That person had no problem with it. They wanted to see this story retold almost beat for beat. And while I say beat for beat, what I mean is, I don't mean it's the same story in the sense that it's the same plot because obviously there is a little bit different here about the plot. Instead of someone that's overworked and not connecting with his children, it's, a parent who is frustrated, he's lost his wife, he's trying to deal with all of this tragedy in his life and trying to keep his home from being foreclosed on. So it's a different driving motivation line that goes through the film, but it is beat for beat, thematically like speaking, like there are the scenes are copies as we move through. I mean, we begin the exact same way with our quote unquote Jack character as a narrator, who is explaining to us the situation and telling us what's going on. Now, I love that sequence. Don't get me wrong. It's a very, very well done one, the London Fog opening scene. But it it happens the same way. And then we get introduced to Mary Poppins. And then they go into a bowl. And, you know, an animated sequence, big, long animated sequence, you know, comes through. And it's, um, instead of a suffragette, the person is on the labor union. It's like, literally, the characters are the same thing. The Meryl Streep section. I would have loved this movie a lot more had that not even been in there. It did nothing for me. It's like it's Uncle Albert all over again, and only instead of hovering up on the ceiling, they're turning themselves upside down. Um, and it just it felt to me like it continued progressing. And I'll tell you, I think the worst part about it for me, me personally, is that by the time we got to the Lamplighter's song, and it was Triple Little Light Fantastic, a, I don't know what that means, and that annoys me because it's not a, a saying and a phrase that I would jump on and grab and readily want to re-sing because I don't like, trip a little light, fantastic. What? What? To me, it's a little bit of a nonsensical saying, which is funny because I love supercalifragilisticexpialidocious, which is also nonsensical. But um, for when we got to that sequence, I I immediately went into it. I was like, oh my gosh, this is cool. We're going to redo the whole silhouette thing. But by the end of it, I was feeling like it was lesser of a movie because it existed. I don't know how to explain it. I just, I was annoyed by it. And I was like, my gosh, we literally just did the same, same exact thing. Only instead of chimney sweeps, we're lamplighters. Instead of being on top of the rooftops and dancing with chimney sweep brooms, we're dancing around light poles. Like we, we are thematically moving in the same exact pacing of the film. We end the same way. Everything just felt to me so completely the same, similar, and it 
it left me not being able to pinpoint the specific places where this movie stood out to me as different. And that was my problem. Like, I would love to be able to tell you, Patrick, this is what I loved the most because it was different. But I can't. I can tell you what I liked, but most of it is stuff that was just copies and to me was lesser copies. So I was like, uh, this is frustrating. Like the performances are okay. They're not terrible. They're not bad. They're good. In some cases they may be great, but it was just so similar. And you know, again, maybe it's partially from being gone from it so long, but I honestly don't think that's nearly all of my issue with it. And so I think for me, when we talk about intertextuality, what I need is I need referential material from intertextuality that is very brief, very subtle connective pieces, not scene for scene recreation. And when I see scene for scene recreation, one after another, after another, after another, I start to go, you have no creativity. You have no idea how to tell another story in this universe. You're just going to tell the same one over and over again. And that's lazy to me. That's what I think. And I get that some people like it. It just doesn't work for me. So... Let me ask you this. Let's say you took the word returns off of the film title and you altered a little bit of the past. Let's say that we don't know about George Banks. We don't know about any of that. Would this work better for you if it was a refreshed version of the 1960s original? 100% yes. Okay. Yes. You're ab- absolutely correct. If this was not supposed to be a sequel... If this was supposed to be a remake, I would accept it more because it is a remake. But when you bill it to me as a sequel, Mm -hmm. it doesn't work as a sequel to me because it is just a remake. Yep. So there's nothing to drive that story forward other than that very small thread, of course, about the family's, you know, changing direction and, and dynamic. But you could easily eliminate those small pockets of calling back to the original and it would, and it would work. Remove returns, take those small little pieces that connect the 2018 back to the 1960s, and you have what I see as an authentic recreation, which may be an oxymoron. (laughs) I know what you're saying. You're saying in a 2018, in Rob Marshall's voice, it's authentic to his vision of it. This is is a true definition of reimagining. This would be the equivalent of a jungle book to its original predecessor, original I don't know if that's an oxymoron either. I might be acting really crazy (laughs) in my head right now. In any case, I think that that might be the thing for both you and I that would completely 180 our perspective on this. Because like you, there were so many small moments of the movie that I smiled at. Triple Little Light Fantastic was absolutely by far my favorite performance and my favorite scene of the entire movie. And it's a little bit ironic because the original chimney sweep scene was not my favorite. I, well, I guess it's not ironic, but it was my least favorite. And so when you have two performances that are supposed to be sort of mimicking each other or paying tribute to one another directly or indirectly, intentionally or unintentionally, it's interesting to feel this way about these two instances, knowing that they're, they're sort of existing in the same space maybe for similar reasons, but to have that, have that different feeling for this current performance of Triple Little Light Fantastic as opposed to the chimney sweep scenes, which was, which was great too, 
um, step in time and, and all that good stuff. I, I'm not conflicted. It's it's a weird but happy feeling knowing that I'm experiencing both this duality of the past and present and at the same time finding completely different opinions for both of these performances. Yeah, and I'm on the opposite side of that, I think. And that's probably part of the difference there is that I adore everything about that original sequence. So for me, it's not an updated, cooler version of it. It's a lesser recreation that does nothing but try to copy it with a different job, you know, and Lin-Manuel Miranda versus uh, Dick Van Dyke yeah, um, leading the charge. So um, it, it definitely is – these kind of movies I think will always fall in this place. I don't think we'll ever be able to talk about a sequel or reimagining, especially when it comes to these Disney movies that we are getting – Dude, next year, Patrick, we've got like three of these to talk about. We've got The right. Lion King, Aladdin, and something else, Dumbo. I mean, this is a conversation we're going to be having a lot because they keep doing it. <laughs> but and, the difference, uh, yeah, I don't know. But the difference in those movies is that they're not trying to be sequels. They're not trying yeah, exactly. to be extensions That's of true. this world. They're like, look, the original story was fine. Let's see what we can do with digital animals and let's sit let's see what we can do with live action actors i mean they yeah, explored I think you, that with you're right i think you nailed it i think you're right i think you take away the returns and you 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 call it an updated mary poppins instead of if you treat it just like those other reimaginings and then i would have a lot less of a problem with it i don't think i would have loved it anymore long term because it's still just like those live action movies they have all fell in the place of Oh man, I had a pretty good time with that, but there's no planet on no time in this planet where I would ever like pick that over the animated film. Like I would rather watch the animated film again. Cinderella? Would that be an exception to the rule? I lied. Cinderella. You're right. You're absolutely right. Cinderella did it for me because that is, I, I forgot about Cinderella. You're right. That's the, the one exception so far. But it was done several years ago as opposed to recently with this kind of bombardment of live action remakes and reimagining so yeah, but, but that's true one did work for me so it can't happen it can't happen right well speaking of things that can work for you um let's dive into what did work for us and i'll go ahead and talk a little bit about the london sky sequence that miranda opened and closed with i thought was fantastic first of all i love him i think he's just fantastic as a as a broadway guy i mean obviously he's immensely talented i mean if you're playing hamilton on broadway you've probably arrived if i could be so bold as to say that but the thing about the london sky sequence worked for me only because of the end having this bookended sequence where you have these same lyrics that are at the beginning celebrating this almost backhanded complimentary gray and dreary London sky, which I think stereotypically that's what we think of when we think of London as kind of dreary and rainy and Seattle-esque, I guess, <laughs> even though I know it Seattle did feel not. a lot like home. Okay. So there you go. But you see that in the opening scene and he's celebrating that in some kind of weird local London way. But I love how the, re the, the reprise is done at the end to this colorful, clear, blue London sky sequence as a way to end the movie. That said a lot about how the tone shifted. There's some lyrics in other songs throughout the movie that sort of hint at the cherry tree blossoms have not bloomed yet, even though winter has left us. 
And I just think visually the, the color palette was so intentionally that way that it really amplified the tone of the movie as we got near the end, going from this kind of gray, blue, kind of drab color palette to the stark, bright pinks and oranges of the color of the end of the movie. So I completely agree with you. And one of the few things that did stick out to me in my memory and that I have held on to as like really, really appreciating it was the cinematography in general. And specifically because of that sequence. I love London Sky. It's my favorite part, I think, of the movie, maybe, um, because of that. And it's, it, we get kind of the same thing where it's super dull, it's super dreary, and then Mary Poppins arrives and it's pow, like the color comes. And as we progress with her, it becomes more and more and more visually appealing until the very end when it is literally just but like the screen is blowing up with color and vibrancy like across the whole thing. I mean, it's gorgeous with the balloons everywhere and the bright blue sky and it's mimicking the tone and the feeling and the emotions of the characters. And I love how that is done. Um, I, I totally am on board with you there. I also, as I mentioned before, I think that the, the triple little light fantastic sequence appealed to me a lot more than the, I guess, original chimney sweep sequence, if we're making that comparison. And the reason why is, this is going to be a weird reference, so I'll explain it. It reminded me a lot of my experience, my most recent experience watching the Nutcracker here in town when it came to uh, our Robinson Auditorium. I have always been that guy from elementary school up through junior high, whenever our school classes would go see the Nutcracker, that would love the first half of a movie, or, or first, first act, first half of the Nutcracker, you know, with all the animals coming alive and, you know, the fights and everything. I'm like, oh my gosh, I wish Christmas Eve was like that around my house. That would be kind of fun. And then the second half of the Nutcracker, if you're familiar with it, is our main characters sitting on a throne and watching all these just let's celebrate dances from around the world. It's world of dance in ballet form. And I would just put my jacket on my chair and I would take a nap and I would like be that's the half an hour that I get to catch up on any sleep that I didn't get the night before. Always that way. Always, always, always the most recent trip to see the nutcracker. I took Krisha several years ago, absolutely fell in love with the second half one because I was an adult. And if I fell asleep on a date with my wife, I'd probably never hear the end of it, but also the dances felt updated. They felt like, yes, they were traditional ballet dances, but the amount of athleticism I could appreciate. Maybe it was because we were watching So You Think You Can Dance uh, earlier that summer. I don't know. But for some reason, I just became enamored with these performances. And so I'm watching this whole sequence play out. And the parkour that takes place, the BMX sequences, you know, these guys doing all these athletic things and making use of, you know, non-human objects, making use of all the things around them. I love the choreography. I love the energy of the whole thing. And yes, there was a lot to compare to when it you look at the chimney sweep sequence, because there's a lot of that as well. But this felt modern to me. It felt like, hey, this is a way to incorporate some modern dance that 
I'm used to, that I've appreciated, that I've grown to love in a Broadway sequence. And in some ways, it was a little far-fetched. I mean, I don't know that I would put... Well, I take that back. Lin-Manuel, uh, Lin-Manuel Miranda sets it up early by riding a bike. But the whole bike sequence of seeing these guys, you know, doing little ramps and doing kind of the, the half pipe type stuff. It was enough for me to feel incredibly entertained. And I think that because I loved it so much, it deflated kind of the first half of the whole animation sequence that I didn't really care for that much. I loved the bathtub sequence. I thought that was pretty fantastic. What a kind of creative way to get us introduced to Mary Poppins and her extraordinary magic. But the whole animation sequence just did not do it for me. And I, like you, got really annoyed with Meryl Streep's character. And more than likely, I mean, let's just say it. I'm going to say it now. She's probably going to get nominated for an Oscar because this is what happens. <laughs> Meryl Streep has a performance in the year that the Oscars are taking place and she gets a nomination. So wouldn't surprise me if this happened. But that was probably my least favorite is I'm like you. I don't feel like it had any place in the movie we'd already well i guess we didn't establish that the thing that they were trying to get fixed was actually not very not worth very much but for me i I just felt like it was kind of eh for me but i felt immense satisfaction with the sequences that took place after that in particularly the um triple little light fantastic well you know as, as much as i come off negative there are things i liked so i will go over a couple of those too. And, you know, one thing I like about this one that I also liked about the first one so much is I love Mary's wisdom and Mary's dialogue. Um, just all of her little one-liners that she gives out there as messages, I think they're almost all wonderful. You know, she says things like, everything is possible, even the impossible. That's probably the most simplistic of them all. Um, but I like that message. Um, she says... We're on a brand new adventure, children. Don't spoil it with too many questions. I thought that was great. That was one I wanted my kids to see, right? Like, hey, let's just, just stop and smell the roses. Like, stop and enjoy the moment. Let's not, like, overthink this. Let's just enjoy it. And I thought that was great. Um, she says at one point, when you change the view, you change for good. I thought that was another great little message about perception and the way that our world can be what we think it is in many ways. And if we simply decide to look at things differently, it can change. I really liked the, one of the jokes that I like the most, I guess, is the Big Ben in this one, where I actually don't like that in the original film. I talked about that in our podcast. This one wraps it up nicely because there's this great line where he says, Big Ben has finally got it right because he's going off late. And so it's actually... It's going on time. And I just thought that was, for some reason, I cracked up. I like literally laughed out loud when that happened. I was like, ha ha, you paid that off. So that's good. Yeah. Um, Dick Van Dyke's cameo, the song and dance number is Mr. Dolls. I love that. I thought that was a real treat and just cute. And probably just because I love Dick Van Dyke so much. So it was cool seeing him in here with a cameo. I, uh, as well as that, like on the same token as that, like I was glad we did not have a Julie Andrews cameo. I read up on how she intentionally said she did not want to be part of this. She needed, she wanted to let it be Emily Blunt's film. And I am so glad because I think it would have just further been a distraction. Um, it's really hard 
to expect Emily Blunt to take this role and run with it anyway. And we did not need the real Julie Andrews in any way taking that attention away. And then one of the other things I liked so much that was almost a connecting point was the whole sequence of the place where the lost things go. If there's a song that I remember the most, I think that that's the one. And, you know, this probably is a personal connective thing for me because these kids are talking about how they've lost things and they're, they're referencing in a lot of ways their memories of their mother. And, you know, I lost my mom five years ago. And so I got it and I understood that feeling. And so when Mary is singing this song and helping to remind them that, you know, she says you can't lose what you never lost. I think that's great. And I think those are the kind of messages that we can take out of this film and like actually they can go on further with us and like have a positive impact on our lives. So those were the things that made me smile the most in the movie. I liked that, even though I didn't necessarily love the plot as a whole. I liked these little snippets of wisdom that came from her and a few of these other scenes. I enjoyed the updated narrative personally. I thought it was it didn't have to be original. But the way they carried the narrative throughout and the way that the songs incorporated that narrative, I thought was really effective Um, in some ways, much more than the original Mary Poppins. Like there was a lot of purpose that these songs had in in conjunction with the story that's being told. Uh, The one that you mentioned, there's um, several others that are just fun. But we mentioned before the the opening and closing uh, of of the London Skies number. And I think that I latched on to that narrative in a way that it felt really sincere. While it may or may not have felt like, oh yeah, this is a logical step forward in the Mary Poppins universe, it established itself as being somewhat believable and got me to be empathetic towards each of these characters. I especially liked john and annabelle and georgie as as michael's kids i like that for the most part they were pretty self-reliant and that 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 came from their mother uh that from the very beginning um annabelle in particular she was almost defiant towards mary poppins she's like i can do this we don't need your help we don't need a nanny i mean very much different than the jane and michael that we got in the original in that they wanted a nanny. They wanted someone to take care of them. But I guess in some ways there was some similarity there because they wanted a nanny on their own terms. And of course, Mary Poppins was the exact fit, but I love their self-reliance. I love the fact that we get these three kids who have their own individual personalities. The fact that there's a third character here, I didn't expect Georgie to, to be, kind of part of this part of this world even though I'd seen him in the in the trailers I kind of expected if we're going to do kind of repetition of course Michael's going to have two kids just like George has two kids but I I love Georgie's wishful thinking his innocence and his believability and I think all three of these characters represent an element of who we are as people of that kind of self-reliant that logical that imaginative side of us. And, and I think they personify that in a really 
fun and effective way. And, and I, I definitely latched onto them as characters. Well, that's awesome. Yeah. I mean, I'm glad I, I didn't. Um, one thing, I, I mean, I don't, I don't dislike them in any way. They just simply were not memorable to me. In fact, mm-hmm. I, I wouldn't have remembered the kids' names had you not just listed them off, like off the top of my head. I only remember Georgie because of it. You know, the movie oh, It. That's the only thing. I was like, is he going to get his arms like pulled off or something like that? <laughs> I, I, that would be a very a spoiler. Different, different movie. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, Mary Poppins Returns. I would like to see It done as a musical, though. That'd be oh, gosh. Fun. Oh, my gosh. I, I, I did want to mention, I you said something that I didn't want to skip over, and that is the, the animated bats of sequence. So the first animated sequence, that was incredible. Just the visual stunningness of that was amazing and i would have been just fine if like that had been our only animated world like you said like the animated whole long part in the bowl was less of a a thing for me to enjoy but the the animated sequence in the bathtub initially was incredible i also like the kind of underlying story that we get out of this the underlying theme message whatever lesson about interest and how impactful that can be i thought that was really great like it we it goes to show that investing in the bank can be a positive thing in in a sense (laughs) like it's kind of like a subversion in a way of like what we learned in the first one and like how that's a negative because they're trying to force it on people but when you do it willingly like yeah it's it comes back to like be this positive thing and i thought that was really cool um as well and you know it's not it's not all bad that's the thing like i i enjoyed moments in the film for sure yeah um I, I like the kite i like the way that the kite is used mm-hmm. um the fact that the tail is i believe the suffragette um banner is that yeah. right it's the yeah the votes for women the original the votes, votes for, for women. women yeah yeah so I, I liked some of that kind of tie-in mm-hmm. stuff as well i thought that was a lot of fun yeah you mentioned the the positivity of investing in the bank and this was something that i had it's a small continuity issue, excuse me. And listeners, if you've seen Mary Poppins recently and you've seen Mary Poppins Returns, please confirm or deny this for me. Um, or I guess I could not be lazy and go back and watch the original Mary Poppins and confirm it myself. But hey, we like getting you guys involved. So do this for me. The, the tuppence that Michael Banks wanted to give the birds according to this movie, were instead invested in the bank. And those tuppence were then, you know, they gained interest. And of course, he could pay off the loan that was almost defaulted for the house and all is right with the world. Dave's ex machina. Yay, yay, yay. Fun, fun, fun. But I remember the last portion of the movie, just before they go fly the kite at the end, that George Banks sings the fact that he invested those tuppence in paper and string, tape and string or something, to mend the kite that they go fly to bring them all together. So maybe either he lied or maybe he invested (laughs) some other tuppence later on. Regardless, Mike's got his house back. The kids are living in it. Apparently... His sister's just kind of a poacher and, you know, hanging out there more than she's hanging out at her flat, whatever. Um, but I kind of found a small issue with that because I'm like, you know what? That was a kind of a memorable moment for me. And I think I remember pointing that out 
on our episode and to go back and say, no, he didn't really <laughs> go down to the local Walgreens and buy stuff for the kite. He actually invested it in the bank that now here is to save your house. I, I don't doubt that Tuppence were. I'm not going to deny that some investment was made to do that. I just don't think it was those Tuppence personally. Well, maybe super fan Jeff Norman, who is a you know, beloved fan of this film. He Mary Poppins is number one of all time. Maybe he will chime in and let us know uh, how that scene went down in the original because I don't recall any of this. And I am not surprised that you, my friend, picked up on something so incredibly detailed as a curious curiosity to come out of this with. An um, egregious musical mistake. I know, right? Of all the things to complain about. That's yeah, I know, right? Gonna, that's where you're going to fly your flag. Um, or my kite in this instance. Ah, nice. Um, real quick before we move on, because I wanted to talk about Dick Van Dyke and Julie Andrews a bit here. Um, Jane and Michael's uh, acting performances. I-, I think every year should start and end with the voice of Paddington Bear. I wrote that in my review. Um, ben Wishaw, who plays Michael, is the the voice of Paddington Bear, and I just love him. I just think he's great and. It, I was able to transport myself and take Paddington out of my mind and actually buy his character in this. I, that was wonderful for me. But I just love him. And um, I think he's phenomenal. And I hope he continues to get more work because he has a very unique voice. And for some reason, it just makes me feel good to hear his voice. Um, and on the opposite side of that, when it came to Jane, I thought she was a completely nearly pointless part of this movie. I mean, if Michael didn't have a sister, like she could have been not in this picture at all. And no one would, nothing would have changed about this film. I felt like she was almost a forced piece to, you know, try. She just had to be there, of course, but I didn't get a lot of value from her. And especially not this added little romance plot of, Jack having wanted to be with her since a kid and like trying to like, you know, I don't know, have this relationship with her and build upon that. And none of that worked for me at all. And I, she was completely like in the take it or leave it arena. She was leave it for me, but I really love Michael. So mm-hmm. kind of offset that. Well, Mary Poppins returns. If there was a central character that wasn't called Mary Poppins, it would probably be Michael. And I think that's consistent with the original. That's, more obvious in this than it is in the original in that this is Michael's story about losing his wife, about trying to keep his family together um, through the avenue of trying to save the house. And, and I agree. I, I, I love Ben Wishaw. And this is the first year that I got introduced to Paddington. Uh, when, when you raved about it at the beginning of the year, I went ahead and watched the first one with my son. And in all honesty, I enjoyed it more than the second one, but that's not a bad thing. I mean, the, the second one was equally as adorable, but the the first one giving us that introduction into the character and having having a great voice to give life to that character, I think is really what made the film for me. And even if he doesn't get more work, I think his mustache should get more work because that thing was just rocking the silver screen there. I'm always going to have a place in my heart for Emily, Emily Mortimer. I love her in Newsroom. I think she's a fantastic actress. I think that there should have been more for her because she was an integral part of the original story. It's Jane and Michael. Jane and Michael. And I don't know that it was her fault that she didn't have as much of a standout performance because the story was really about him. 
And her role in his world, I think, was nicely supported in that she she stayed with him and she supported him as as his sister. But I don't think there was enough about her that rounded her out enough. Like, I feel like she was in there because she had to be because she's Jane Banks and because it's always been Jane and Michael. It's never been just Michael. I mean, if Michael had lost his wife and his sister, that would have been weird. And I would have probably then argued for an, a significantly different movie than what we got here instead of a, a rehash or a reimagining or whatever we're calling it for the sake of safety. But obviously the the performance was not the problem. I think I think it's just how she was written. That's the movie I wish I would have gotten. You just said it. That's it. Instead of losing his wife, Michael lost his sister. Michael has a wife loses his sister and is losing his house totally changes the tone of the film for me. Okay. If the, if that's the case, I think, I think that would have been a much more intriguing and different would have been much more of a returns concept for me. Yeah. And I think it would have worked a lot better. I mean, that sounds morbid. I know guys don't stone me for that. I love Jane and I don't want her they're wishing her death here. And like Patrick, I love Emily Mortimer as well, largely because of the newsroom. It's not, I'm not knocking her as an actress. I just, didn't care for the character in the film right. um, at all. But that, that would be an intriguing idea right there. Yeah. On the opposite end of that, I think that Lynn manuel Miranda, and Emily Blunt nailed their roles as Jack and Mary Poppins, respectively. There was so much about Emily Blunt specifically, the mannerisms, the way in which she just gave these looks to Jane and Michael. Even from the trailer, I mean, it was spoiled in the trailer, but the way that she says, well, of course, I came back to look after the Banks children. And I think Michael says something like, what? Us? He goes, oh, yes, you too. She's so terse. And the I looked at Krisha and I said, man, she is just she is just nasty. I mean, she is she's just all up kind of diva, like all self-important. And I'm like, yep. So is Julie Andrews playing the original Mary Poppins, like this confidence that she carries with herself. Emily Blunt just, ah, oh, I love, I love this updated Mary Poppins. And if anything could shine above everything else, I think that she did the character justice in her performance as Mary Poppins. And then Lynn Manuel Miranda as Jack. I was kind of curious. I didn't know who he was playing. I didn't really read too much into the cast listing. I was like, this couldn't be Bert because Bert's per perpetually young apparently. And so I liked that he came in and gave us that Bert esque kind of dashing, likable man who only has one job. Thankfully, you know, he can hold down a job, but I love their uh, I love their performances, and I love the fact that they didn't have to have that chemistry that Bert and Mary did. That they that wasn't something that needed to be recreated. I didn't like you. I didn't necessarily care for the whole subplot of the possibility of him and him and and Jane. In fact, it would have probably thrown me overboard if they had done a number together expressing their love for one another at some point. I was like, I'm glad that that didn't happen. So, uh, but. But Lynn Manuel is is great in this as well. Yeah, I totally agree with you on Emily Blunt. I think she was phenomenal, and it was a near impossible task, which is kind of ironic considering Mary Poppins's phrasing on, you know, there is no impossible essentially. 
everything's possible. Well, it is possible to have someone stand in. Now, I think the way I wrote it in my review is I said she is as good as anyone could be. She is not Julie Andrews. And there is a level that Julie Andrews achieves that there is a reason that you are an icon and an historic actress um, in of an all-time nature. Julie Andrews, when it comes to being an actress and singing, is very unique and special. I think Emily Blunt did as good of a job as any current living actress could potentially have done. That's what I think. And it was wonderful. Um, didn't, didn't bother me at all. Um, but yeah, I love that. I actually love that, that she was more terse and she, I think more so than Julie Andrews, from what I understand, captured the tone and the, the attitude of Mary Poppins from the book and the original mm-hmm. written material is much more like hardcore kind of stoic and cold, <laughs> um, natured. And that's how Emily Blunt came off. But yet when it's needed, she always provides that cool side and that sweet demeanor just enough. Um, and it, and it's beautiful. It's, it's a really great performance by her. And I have no doubt that she will be nominated or at least be highly considered for, um, an Oscar nomination for this. I wouldn't, it wouldn't shock me one bit, um, if that came her way. And I wouldn't have a lot of argument against that because it's, it's a tough character to update and to recreate. And she does a bang up job. When it comes to, Lin-Manuel Miranda, I love that guy. I love everything about his career and what he's done in writing and performing Hamilton and all of the the neat stuff he does. I did not love him in this movie. I don't dislike him in this movie, but I I just kept feeling like, hey, this is Lin-Manuel Miranda in a movie versus this is Jack. And that's the trigger for me. And like, did somebody recreate this character? Did somebody get into this character? There's a, a song in this, and I don't even remember what it's called because it didn't stand out to me, but there's a moment in this movie where he raps. And it's very, very obvious to me that they like wrote this song in there because that's what Lin-Manuel Miranda is known for doing. So he's got to be able to like spit some lines. Didn't feel consistent with the character to me at all. He does a fine job. I just, I didn't get that same feeling I have when I see Dick Van Dyke. And I, and it's weird. I don't know if I hold Dick Van Dyke in this special place or something, but when it comes to this movie, there's just a level of comedy that Dick Van Dyke naturally is able to achieve that doesn't feel like he's acting. And for me, Lin-Manuel Miranda didn't quite hit that note. Um, yeah. yeah. He brings some happiness and, and some, some really great energy and his song and dance is of course amazing. So I love the guy. I love the guy. I just didn't feel like this was like an amazing performance for me. Yeah. And the, the fact is Dick Van Dyke lives in the same level for me as like Danny Kay. This stage presence, this ability to provide levity where I'm going to probably kind of contradict myself in that what I liked about the chemistry between Bert and Mary Poppins was that they felt like opposites. They felt like you had this kid living inside of this multiple job owning guy who just loved to have fun with whatever he was doing. 
and he knew the inner workings of Mary Poppins. And I think that Jack, because of that kind of distance that he has with Mary Poppins, he knew of her through, I guess, stories that Bert told him because of his backstory. I don't know. And I think that we don't get that kind of, we don't get that kind of, we get optimism from his character, Jack, but we don't get variety. And I'm, I agree. I think that his performances singing and dancing wise outshined his performance as the character. And so I was glad to watch him perform in a song and dance role more so than I was him just being a part of the the narrative. It wasn't bad, but if there was a forgettable character in those moments, he was one of them. Even as much as the cast as a whole was supportive, I really, really, uh, his, his shining moment for me was climbing up Big Ben. That was a great sequence for me. I love the putting the little ladders together and, and, you know, seeing the inner workings of Big Ben. I, I like that for him because that made sense for him. He was a, you know, he was a, a light guy, a linear. Oh, I don't even know what they are. I forget, but lamplighter. Um, yeah, but I think they're called something else. Oh, a leery. A leery. Thank you. And uh, but yeah, I agree with you. I think his his song and dance performances kind of outshined his character's like acting performance. Gosh, I hated that sequence, Patrick. I, that was probably the most hated part of the movie for me. Okay, was the Big Ben thing. Oh, I felt like it was so out of context the rest of the film. I was like, because in the movie and in the world of Mary Poppins, there are, there's reality and then there's Mary Poppins magical world that's Mm -hmm. being influenced. And for me, that felt like we're taking this actual, what's supposed to be realistic situation and it's resulting in a a certain sense of like magic. Does that make sense? Mm Mm-hmm. Like it didn't feel like it was being impacted by Mary Poppins's magic world, but yet it was resulting in that because it's not realistic what they were doing. It's completely crazy to climb um, to climb Big Ben and turn the, the way back. in which that was taking place. Well, the way the ladders were were strung together and everything like bouncing up on the ladders and using them to pole vault and like all of that craziness. Like it was very magical. Yeah. It was not a realistic climbing of a tower in order to do something. You know, they're like all strung across each other. Like one after another on each other's shoulders type things. These are yeah. not, this is not something really could happen, could that really happen. And, um, and so that took me out of it a lot. I didn't like that sequence okay. at all. Um, not the narrative of it, like the idea of turning back the clock. That was, that was fine. That was cool. Um, I like how that played out. I just didn't like that at all for some reason. But, and at, and, and at that point I was like, Oh, this is going to play right into the admiral. He's going to, his clock's right. going to, yeah. I said, that's, and this is where the setup's going to be. It pays off, right? Yeah. Ultimately, like I told you, I love, that's one of the things I like the most is that line, that freaking payoff right there. I was like, finally, there's a purpose for this guy to exist because get me that funny line right there. <laughs> um, but yeah, anyway. All right. Well, let's get into things that make us happy, which we talked about a few of them, but obviously the connecting point is the one place that we can equally live in terms of uh, finding positivity and at least a shred of happiness, even if a movie did not appeal to us. So connecting point, I'll go ahead and start us off. For me, the most obvious one was the attic scene. Uh, what I call the conversation number. Cause that's the name of the song that, that, uh, that Michael sings whenever he is up in the attic, they're looking, he's looking for the papers that prove that he has shares in the bank. 
And um, going back to my one word takeaway, as supportive as everyone in the cast was throughout the movie, this is essentially an intimate moment between Michael and the memory of his wife. It's here that, that I got empathetically connected with him. And this is the moment that I said, okay, this is Michael's story. Just like the original was George's story. The fact that he does this talking, singing combination really makes it feel that much more authentic. It reminded me, obviously, you know, because I just can't help but throw a Hugh Jackman reference in this episode, uh, of the moment in From Now On when he starts the song and he's talking as he's singing. I love that kind of performance because it really makes you feel like the person is feeling what they're singing. Musicals, by default, are fantastical. It's like, who breaks out in song randomly during the day? I know you do, and sometimes there are exceptions to the rule. Sometimes I do that as well. But this isn't normal. This isn't real life, and oftentimes it has to be a fantastic singing performance to get me to be emotionally evoked or something like that. And so having this combination of singing and talking as he's working through this song, it's almost as if he's just kind of struggling to get his emotions out. He's working through this emotional moment um, when he's talking to this memory of his wife. Um, there's a great lyric. He says, winter has gone, but not from this room. Snows left the lane, but the cherry trees forgot to bloom. You know, he feels so lost and desperately tries to hold things together to be strong for his family. And up here in this intimate place, this place where happiness once lived, he's clutching his wife's pearls. It's a place where he feels like he can be completely vulnerable, and he is. And he finishes the song by singing, but still, one question fills my day, dear. The answer I most long to know each moment since you went away, dear. My question, Kate, which, by the way, I think that's the only time we get to hear her name. I'm not sure, but I think it is. He says, my question, Kate, is, and he says it. He doesn't sing it. He says it. Where did where did you go? <laughs> it's tragically beautiful. It's this moment that has so much weight to it, but even more so, it has this really nice payoff uh, later on in the movie with him. And I love it. Yeah. It, it's a very, very tender moment for sure. And I don't, yeah. I don't think we hear her name mentioned hardly at all. Uh, it's funny when you just mentioned it just right now, I thought, Hmm, I wonder if there's something to the fact that her name is literally one letter away from the word kite. Uh, <laughs> mm, not sure. <laughs> probably not, but this movie is not, I'm not be surprised. Um, <laughs> It's really cool, though, seriously, that you picked that, because mine, I think, is the moment you're talking about, where it kind of pays off. Yes. Um, and, it, you know, you said earlier when you were announcing this connecting point section here that we, you know, we like to think of things as a lot of times these do are like the happiest moments. But there is a bit of bitterness and tragedy to both of these. There's some sadness that's involved and um, the happiness ultimately comes out of them. But it's not without some pain to kind of work through and get through. And so mine is Michael's breakdown. Um, he's been feeling the pressure, this whole film of trying to hold it together for these five days to find a way to keep the house. But it's in this scene that he gets so frustrated and he snaps at the children and it totally is out of character for him. 
And very quickly, he transitions into crying and lamenting that he can't save the house. He's, he's totally breaking down. This really connected with me because as a parent, I've been here. Um, you know, I can admit that I've snapped at my kids and within seconds hated myself for it and felt that swift change of emotion to where I'm almost like crying now because I didn't want to yell at them. And I know that I'm not really directing my anger at my children or my frustration at my children, but yet they were the ones that got the brunt of it there in that moment. So I really, really connected with this deeply. And he's talking about how tough the year has been since they lost his wife. And his kids come back at him after being snapped at, and they sing a little reprise of the place where the lost things go to him. And I straight up started bawling. Like this is, this is the one moment in the movie where I remember and I will never forget it because I really touched me because I find that really special, um, in this film because it pays off that moment so strong that we had earlier, both this section in the attic that you talked about and the initial learning of the place where the lost things go from Mary Poppins's lesson that the kids receive in the beginning of the film. And so you take those two things together and you bring them, bring them and you tie them up with this moment right here. And it is just so beautiful. Michael then tells the kids that they're right. He understands. He says, you know, the mother is never going to go away that she's in your smile and in your walk and in your eyes. And as you know, he's a father, he's struggling and his children are comforting him and they all come together as a family and it has nothing to do with Mary Poppins in that moment. And I think it's just absolutely wonderful to see and was supremely touching to me. Yeah, I think the heart of the original lives in this scene to kind of echo. If if that's what if that's the ultimate goal of what Mary Poppins Returns is, is to echo the highlights of the original in new and refreshing ways. And I think in this moment, that's the moment that did it. And Selfishly, I'm going to say that it probably wouldn't have been nearly as powerful if we didn't have my connecting point. So there you have it. But equally as much, that was my number two connecting point because of everything that you just mentioned. And it's definitely worthy. Um, and I love his performance in that. It's that's a real it, it's truly a father's moment with his children. And it's fantastic. Well, dude, this has been great. I've enjoyed the conversation. I'm excited to uh, finish out the year strong with you. With everything that's going on, uh, we've got a lot going on the next probably, I guess, week or two just to, to finish out 2018. And um, to begin with, we've got the end of year episode that's going to be happening. I think it's going to be dropping on Friday morning. So be sure to check that out. It'll be a lot of fun. We're always, always looking forward to that one. Going to be talking about our our favorite moments in the podcast. We're going to be talking about some of our uh, most favorite uh, what we call our feeling five. We'll be talking about what our favorite acting performances are and just a, a slew of other things. If you've listened to these before, you'll know that uh, we always have a good time on the show. So be sure to tune in for that. Um, if you want to continue the conversation with me or give me um, answers to the burning questions that I have, you can always find me on social media at Shoeless Patch, S-H-O-E-L-E-S-S-P-A-T-C-H on Facebook and Twitter. Aaron, what about you? Where can people find you? Well, if you'd like to find me on social media, you can do that on Twitter at Feelin' Film or in our amazing Facebook group. You can find that by just typing in Feelin' Film discussion group into the Facebook search or in the link. There's a link to it, rather, in the show notes of every episode as well as on our website. We'd love to have you come 
be a part of that ever-growing community. It's an awesome place. We are currently a, a ton of people are taking this journey with me, calling it Road to Endgame, where every single week between now and the release of Endgame, we are watching one of the Marvel movies uh, in sequence. We'll take a quick break there in the middle to, to do Captain Marvel, but otherwise we're in sequence. And every week we're posting a discussion thread where people are coming and dropping their own connecting points and just having a good time talking about these movies as we all go revisit them. And it's it's been a ton of fun so far doing that as a group. And we'd love to have you come join us for that. In addition to that end of the year episode next week, Patrick, it, it is busy. We're also dropping our December donor pick episode, which is a mini-sode uh, this year serving as our Christmas episode. And we're doing Christmas vacation. So that'll be out on Friday. On Friday, you're getting a double drop. And then next week, we get to talk about Aquaman. And I will just contain myself right now, but we get to talk about Aquaman. And we have the amazing... Andrew B. Dice from ScreenRant.com coming to join us for that episode. We are both super duper psyched about that. We love getting a chance to talk to Andrew. We know he loves this movie. Anybody that knows anything about me and has seen me on social media knows how much I love this movie. Patrick hasn't seen this movie yet, so we're going to all cross <laughs> our fingers that Patrick falls in love with Aquaman, and we might just have an all-timer on our hands. No pressure. But seriously, <laughs> uh, I'm excited to get to talk about that movie next week. So it, it's it, there's a lot coming at you, and then we roll right into January and we're going to be starting James Cameron month. So if you're not aware in in January, we've been doing a director month where we cover one director's films. So in January, we're doing James Cameron and we're going to be talking about the abyss Titanic. Oh my gosh. Help me out, Patrick. <laughs> Avatar. Avatar and true lies. That's right. Those four we've already covered T2. So before you get start asking us questions, we've, we've did that, done that already. You can find that in our history. Go back and check that out. But um, I'm super excited about that and a new announcement that we're going to be dropping in the end of year special. So if you want to hear and be the first person to know what's coming for Feelin' Film in 2019 that has to do with episodes we may be releasing on a regular basis, hint, hint, <laughs> come to the end of year special episode. Listen to that and you can find out. You're terrible at this, man. You're so terrible. <laughs> But you're I'm awesome. plugging, man. I'm plugging. I'm trying. I'm trying to get them numbers. Nah. <laughs> you're an extension cord, man. This is awesome. All right, guys. That is all for us. Uh, until next time, stay positive and keep feeling. Tuppence. It's actually, just so you know, it's called Tuppence. Tuppence, it's, sorry. It's T-U-P-P-E-N-C-E. And okay. I looked it up in our last episode because I've always called it exactly what you wrote in this notes, Tuppence. Tuppence. It, that's Tuppence. always what I've called it, and that's what it sounds like. But it's it's Tuppence. And I had I, mean, I was like, that's not what they're saying. <laughs> I mean, I guess, I guess it is bag. in they're British. Tuppence a bag. It sounds like Tuppence to me, but it's Tuppence. Like sixpence, only tuppence. Okay, so tuppence. Tuppence, none the richer. <laughs> Apparently not. If you only have two tuppence, you're none the richer for that. You are not. Maybe that's how we can remember it. Yeah, there we go. I, don't, I mean, I don't think it matters what you call it. Wait a minute. Maybe it's two pence. Maybe that's what they're really saying is two pence. Two pence a bag. Oh, it might actually be a... a, a yes! I'll bet it's two pence. I bet it is, too. Two pence Shakur. Yeah, that's what oh, it is. Oh, now we're really going on a tangent.